I just uh, moved here from about, about a year ago from East Tennessee, and I used to hike in the Smoky Mountains quite a bit. And uh, a lot of bears, a lot of black bears down there, a lot more than there are here. So one particular day, as I was getting to the trailhead, uh, a park ranger met me, and he was handing out uh, little uh, lanyards with little bells on them. And um, he said that the idea was that the, just walking through the woods, you're just making enough noise with those little bells to you know, keep the bears away, at least away from the path. And he said, you also want to be looking for uh, bear droppings. And I asked him, how will you know they're bear droppings? And he said, because they'll have little bells in them. So how's that for starting off a conference where we're talking about the lies men believe? (laughs) We are going to be talking about the lie that men and women, for that matter, believe that there are many ways to God. And we're going to talk about the truth that refutes that lie. And we're going to do it in, I think, some interesting ways um, that were very meaningful to me about eight, eight years ago that really helped build my faith and my confidence in Jesus as the only way to the Father. So to help us unpack the truth, we're going to be looking at three areas. Two dominant religious views, we're going to be looking at them first, and then we're going to be looking at a few transcendent influences of the historical Jesus, you know, extra-biblical things about Jesus and his followers on human history, because they all point to his divinity. All these things point unequivocally to Jesus' divinity. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the true and somewhat scandalous statement that Jesus made about himself in John chapter 14. So two questions. Well, maybe just one question, but by a show of hands, and I can't, I can't step away from here. So yeah, show of hands. How many have heard at some point somebody say something to the effect of there are many ways to God or all paths lead to God? Raise a hand. Yep. Yeah. How many of you guys are, have a heartbeat and are breathing? Yeah, it's just pretty much the same. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just in our culture. Um, the idea that there are many ways to God is, is just pervasive in our world today. And there are all kinds of people who believe all kinds of things and are just, especially about the nature of God. And um, there, it, so it's tempting, I think, in that culture to, in this postmodern culture, to, to maybe hope, hope that there are, in fact, more ways than one to God, that anyone with a sincere belief on their particular spiritual journey or pilgrimage will get to God eventually. They'll get to the same place. And that simply and sadly cannot be true, and we'll get a better understanding of that as we look briefly at these two dominant uh, religious views, and they are religious pluralism and Christian particularism. And you can tell, I'm sure, just by the, those two titles, what they're about. So <clears throat> we'll look, first of all, at pluralists. Pluralists, all, all pluralists say that the world's religions are equally valid. All religions are equally valid. Now, some pluralists say that all the world's religions teach basically the same thing. Um, they get you to the same place. So they're both valid and true. Mahatma Gandhi held to that belief. My question would be, from what vantage point does a person have to be to determine that all roads lead to God? What's their perspective? And it seems to me that if, that if, this, if this is God and you're trying to determine the, the paths that lead to him, it almost seems to me as though you have to elevate yourself somewhere above God and look down and see, yeah, all paths lead to God. And that's exactly what humanism does. Humanism says, basically, we're a God to ourselves. And we want a God, as humanists, we want a God that is easy to get to and, and friendly and cordial and one that we can manage, right? So a pluralist believes that all paths lead to God. So um, another thing that we can look at is just, uh, you know, when you hear that argument, 
even a, you know, even a cursory look at all the world religions, if you do that, you come away with the understanding that they all contradict each other. And so they can't all be true. Other pluralists uh, say that all world religions are false. So they're, they're valid because they believe they're all valid, but they're, they're equally valid and equally false. And to that, I would simply ask the question, but why should we think that that's true, that they're all false? Why couldn't one of them be true? And when you examine the arguments for religious pluralism, you'll, you'll come to see that, that they're really textbook examples of logical fallacies. And I wish we had time to, to look at that in more detail. We don't this morning, but they are just full of fallacies. And a lot of them are double-edged swords and, and uh, don't even realize it. Um, <clears throat> religious pluralists will often acknowledge that Jesus was uh, you know, a good person. He was a teacher, a uh, moral person. And to that superficial acknowledgement, C.S. Lewis made this observation. This is actually in our book, Lies That Men Believe, but you just can't say it better than C.S. Lewis did. So I'm going to quote it. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or he would be the devil himself. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can follow at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a good moral human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So we've considered, just briefly, religious pluralism. Now we'll look at the opposition to that, which is Christian particularism, and that's the belief, very simply, that Christ alone provides the way to God. The fact of Jesus' entry into human history is indisputable. Uh, he alone changed the trajectory of humanity like no one else has ever done, even come close to. His death, his life, birth, life, death, and resurrection are documented in the Gospels and throughout the, the New Testament, not to mention the hundreds of predictions about those events in the Old Testament. In addition to the, to the, uh, scriptural, uh, to the scriptures, Christians, both non-Christians and Christians, uh, historians, have documented these same events, the birth, life, death, and burial of Jesus. You know, take, for instance, our calendar. Every time we write the date on a piece of paper, whether or not we think about it, we are acknowledging the birth of Jesus Christ. Our, our calendar and most of the, cal the calendar of most of the world is based on the birth of Jesus Christ. Your birthday is in relation to the birth of Jesus Christ. My birthday is in relation to the birth of Jesus Christ. So now I'd like to spend uh, a few minutes talking about, well, we're going to discuss basically the impact of, of Jesus on, on history. And so it's kind of be, it's a, it'll be kind of a talk of, like on, on apologetics. And you might ask, well, why, why do that? And I think it's really important for two reasons. Um, I think we, as Peter tells us, we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have. And the second reason that I want to do it, kind of approach it this way, is because fish are the last to discover water. Fish are the last to discover water. In other words, the more familiar the, the reality is that we live in, the less we tend to notice it. Jesus' profound impact, which continues to this day in our culture, society, and everyday experience, still points to his divinity. I believe that, that we would do well to discover or to be uh, reawakened to that reality. And then we're going to discuss toward the end the, the statement that Jesus made in, in John 14. So, Let's look at Jesus' influence, and, and when I say Jesus' influence, it's his influence and the influence of his followers uh, on education. That's the first one we'll look at. Uh, and, and a lot of this material 
comes from a book entitled Jesus Skeptic. Jesus Skeptic, and it's by John Dickerson. Excellent book. And there are many like that, but th that's the one in particular that some of this information comes from. I want to give him credit. So, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, this is in John 8, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus' early followers took him very literally, and they, be, they, they continued on with the, with the Jewish tradition of teaching their children, but now they're teaching them about the, the freedom, the truth, and the freedom, uh, and, the, and the life of Messiah Jesus. And that continued, and then, and then that kind of developed into what, what we call monastic schools, schools where it was a grouping of children where they were taught in a school situation. Monasteries is basically, it's where monastic comes from. Those monastic schools then gave birth to schools that were called cathedral schools, and they, they were simply schools that, were, that operated out of church buildings or, or out of cathedrals. We're going really fast through this progress, but these cathedral schools led eventually to schools of higher learning or universities, and they were Christian universities. In fact, they were overtly Christian universities because their purpose was to study the scriptures, learn to read, first of all, study the scriptures. Those two were, were the dominant uh, uh, courses. And then in, on the university level, more, more uh, classes, of course, were added. Um, and, and so now we're going to jump ahead to North America. In North America, the first nine universities that were founded here were founded by Christian groups, mainly the Church of England and the Puritans. From that list, that list of nine, the first, it, it goes on, that first 167 of 182 colleges and universities started were founded by Christians. And again, for the express purpose of teaching people to read and study the, the Christian scriptures. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, universities like that, it gave birth to other colleges like MIT and University of Chicago. They, in turn, were instrumental in starting uh, state colleges like University of Michigan and Penn State University. Harvard was founded because Reverend John Harvard wanted to see pastors trained in the Boston area. Dartmouth was founded to train missionaries to reach the American Indians with the gospel. A recent Center for World University ranking shows the top 10 universities in the world, and they were all founded by Christian groups. So our modern colleges and universities owe their origin to, the, to Christian passion to educate youth in the ways of Jesus. That's where they, that's where it all started. And it's a fascinating, fascinating study that goes a lot more in depth than what we're doing this morning. But I want to, I want to give you the, 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 the sense of the influence, the extra biblical influence of Jesus and his followers on our, on our world today. Um, one other little point from uh, Kennedy and Newcomb, I think they were the, they co-authored What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? That's another book. So Kennedy and Newcomb say that by the turn of the 20th century, 1900, largely non-Christian non nations like India and China had a, had a um, literacy rate of somewhere between zero and 20%. In predominantly Catholic nations, the literacy rate was 40 to 60%. And in Protestant nations, the literacy rate was 94 to 99%. So we can see from tracing the influence of Christianity through education that the, the degree to which people had a passion to teach the word of God to others, to that degree, they learned to read. Wherever followers of Jesus went, greater literacy followed. And that's just an empirical fact of, of history. 
Next, we want to take a look at, at hospitals. And this, too, is a fascinating, fascinating study. Um, so before Christ, sick people were feared and avoided, uh, even if they were family members. And we see Jesus having a very different approach to the sick and the diseased. Um, and his, his life and teachings restored value to the sick. We see the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking. And again, his disciples witnessed that. Many of his disciples experienced it firsthand as he sent them out to spread the gospel. They were able to do these, these same kinds of miracles. And as early as the second century, and that's the first 100 years, not after Jesus' death, but after his birth, Christian care centers were, were being started up by followers of Jesus. They're relatively crude in, in our thinking, but they were, they were care centers for the sick. In 165 to 180 AD, the Antonine Plague killed about a, a, almost a third of the population of the entire Roman Empire. In fact, it's estimated that five million people in Rome alone died from the plague. The rich fled because they could. The poor pagan families, in terror of dying themselves, would lay their sick out on the street. Christians in Rome gave themselves to the care of these sick and often dying themselves in the process. So impressive were these acts of medical service by the followers of Jesus that the pagan emperor Julian decided that he was going to try to copy that. And he was going to do so through the Roman state. So they implemented hospitals and care centers for the sick. And that's where they, they, they cared for the sick in these hospitals. But that failed. And it failed because Christians did it out of love. The state did it out of necessity. did it out of obligation. However, in 325 AD, up in Turkey, a group of churches met together, and they decided that for every church building that they would build, they would build a hospital. And often, it wasn't necessarily, in fact, very seldom was a standalone hospital, but rather a hospital that was attached to the church building. So that was 325 AD. That movement started. And again, they weren't elaborate hospitals. <clears throat> and my computer went off there. Yeah, so then, okay, so these Christian care centers continued through the Middle Ages. So from the fall of Rome until the Renaissance, these, these uh, cathedral care centers, uh, church-based care centers thrived. And then during the scientific revolution, this is an interesting evolution here, um, science centers developed like in close proximity to these crude care centers, and the two started to intermingle. The science centers and these care centers, these hospitals. And this was the beginning of modern medicine as an actual scientific practice. Christian hospitals move from mere centers of compassion to places of scientific learning. And the end result was eventually the modern hospital, including teaching hospitals and university hospitals. U.S. News and World Report recently named the top 10 hospitals in the U.S. All 10 were founded by Christians, and their doctors, their first doctors, were trained in those Christian-founded universities that I talked about earlier. Now I'd like to talk about one of our contemporaries, a guy by the name of Francis Collins. He was, the, he's the direct, he was until just recently, the director of the National Institutes of Health, and you may or may, may not have heard his name, but he's ranked among the, among the top scientists in the world in our, uh, today. He's, he, there are people compare him to Pascal and Newton. 
and he was the one that discovered the, the genes associated with a number of diseases and led to the international, he, and he led the International Human Genome Project. Fascinating story because he began, uh, he began as, a, as an atheist, began his, his career as an atheist. But he had, he had trouble, he struggled with the, conclu- with the conclusion that he was coming to that one could actually arrive at faith because it made sense. Because it was in accordance with the facts. So between his findings and the study of human DNA and the writings of people like C.S. Lewis and others, he trusted Christ at the age of, of 27. And he studied human genome, as he studied the human genome code written in all of humanity, he saw that his observations were a reflection of God's plan, changed his entire perspective. He saw DNA, the information molecule of all living things, as God's language. They just discovered the DNA for human shyness. They would have found it earlier, but it was hidden between two other genes. He noted also that the elegance and complexity of our own bodies, as well as the rest of creation, were also reflections of God's plan. If you ever get a chance to read, he wrote a, he wrote a book, one book I know of, and just his, his writings in general, um, because he describes... DNA as God's language to humanity. And it's very, very compelling uh, information. Um, He said this, by investigating God's majestic and awesome creation, science can actually be a means of worship. So the modern hospital owes its origins to Christian compassion, to care for the sick and the abandoned. Another area, third area I'd like to look at is the area of slavery and the influence of Jesus' followers in ending slavery. The Gospels and the Epistles, as we know, address slavery, and slavery in the day in the Rome, Roman Empire was very different than, than the atrocities that we had in this country. You could actually join yourself as a slave voluntarily to pay off a debt in the Roman Empire. In fact, it's estimated that uh, it, at that time, about a third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves, and another third had been slaves. So you work as a slave, you work basically indent- as an indentured slave. You don't get paid, but you're paying off a debt. So that's, that's how they would buy homes and, and things like that. Now, today, we have banks that do that. They didn't have banks. They didn't have that infrastructure. So they they just, that's how they did it. They would, in, they would become bonded to the person that they owed money to, and they'd work off that money because they didn't have banks. Today, banks will loan you money if you can prove to them that you don't need it. Sorry, there are any bankers out there. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. <laughs> so <clears throat> so slavery, was, uh, slavery was commonplace in the world. Um, when the Europeans arrived here, it was among the Native Americans and had been for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. It was tribal. They would, one tribe would defeat another tribe and they would make that tribe slaves. So it, was, it really was, was, was ubiquitous throughout the world. And it, it, was, it was the horrendous kind of oppressive slavery that we had in this country for about 200 years. I mean, we got it wrong for 200 years, but Thanks, thanks be to God. Um, eventually, Congress made it illegal. And the, and the reason they did that is because Christians rose up and used the scriptures to show that it was sin. So they called it sin, and they made it illegal. And there were not a lot of countries in the world that did that. We were, we were one of them from, that, from strictly Christian influence, the rising up of of men and women who used the Bible as a basis to end slave, this kind of slavery, uh, Great Britain, of course, did also, and other countries did too. So I said all that to say, again, 
that the end of slavery owes its origins to the compassion of, Christ, of a Christian community. And we could go on talking about Jesus' influence and his followers' influence in the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution which followed, the arts, medicine, women's rights, huge, uh, economics. Um, we don't have time to do that, but, but his influence is throughout all of them. So the bottom line is this. While Jesus remains the single most discussed, argued about, misunderstood, loved, hated, individual person in human history, his influence in only three or four years of ministry goes throughout the entire, transcends the, the growth of even the, the, the church movement itself and reaches out into every area of human existence and endeavor. And that's, that's the guy, this, I'm talking about the guy, Jesus, that guy that said, and we'll get to this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You know, we can't always argue from the Bible. I think that's the best place to argue from. But we don't always have that opportunity, especially if we're talking to someone who gives no credence to the Bible. That's why we're talking about this, guys. And, and, I, and I'm, I, I just, I hope that, that maybe for some of you, I mean, it did for me, it was just eye-opening. It built my faith up to see and to learn about the influences all around me, all around me. But I was like that fish. I, I just, that was my reality. I wasn't even aware of it. So now we're going to look at the Jesus and the statement that he made. And uh, so again, Christian particularism is Christ is the only way to God. And uh, this is the, the crux of what we're going to talk about. Because the statement he made, controversial statement he made in, uh, in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Let me ask you a question. What are some other things, some other like politically incorrect things or upside down things that Jesus said in his ministry? We just, anybody? Mm-hmm, yep. How about, mm-hmm, yep, yep. Any, any others? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm? Yeah, that's a tough one. I was hoping nobody would say that. <laughs> yeah, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So he wasn't acting out of content, out of uh, context here when he said that. He wasn't. He was acting very consistently when he made that. When he made this statement about him being the only way to God. You know, we often talk about Jesus saying, making all these upside down, turning everything upside down. I think what Jesus was really trying to do is turn things right side up. He was trying to restore, and he was in the process, and he did restore, and he's going to continue, by the way, restoring everything to up, back up right like it was in the Garden of Eden. And I happen to believe that part of that has been done when we trust Christ as our Savior and we become an entirely new kind of human being. I believe that our ability to commune with God is restored. It could be just, we can have a conversational daily conversate, walk with Jesus just like they did in the Garden of Eden. Now, we, we live in a fallen world. We still have our flesh. That part of us that is stubborn and thinks that we can do better. And then we have the world, which is all of, all of, the, all of society set against God. So we, we still have three enemies of our soul. But I believe with all my heart that, we, that the communion part is ours to have. So the statement in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, kind of slams the brakes on all the paths that lead to God. Nonsense. And is uh, at the crux of Christian particularism, which stands, again, in direct opposition to religious pluralism. And, and that statement remains, ironically, as, as scandalous today as it did 2,000 years ago. This single statement is, I think, the most important bit of information ever to occur in human history. And it's, it's vitally important for you and for me, personally. Consider physical birth. There's one way to get physically born. One egg, one sperm come together, life begins, 
birth occurrence. My parents got together in April of 1954, and there was some kind of a swimming contest, and I won. It was like, it was like a million to one odds that I won. And um, nine months later, I was born. I kind of wish we could, we could remember that, but, but no, you got the circumcision part. No, no, I don't want to go there. You know, I don't remember being circumcised, but I can tell you this, I didn't walk for 13 months. I don't know how I got off on that, but I do have this faint recollection. So I was born in January of 55, so back three months to October of 1954, late October. I have this faint memory of going to a Halloween party dressed as my mom. Is that, is that, like, is that weird? I don't know. <laughs> I'm weird. <laughs> so, sorry about that. You might have to edit that out. Sorry, whatever. I don't get paid for this. <laughs> so, back to my point. If the creator of the universe established one way for physical birth, why would we have a problem with him establishing one way for a second birth? It's not illogical. And that's exactly what he has done. Old Nicodemus had a hard time figuring this out. I can't wait to see him. I believe we're going to see him in heaven. I want to ask him, like, when did you get that figured out? So now I want to consider uh, for a while the context of this statement that Jesus made. So in John 13, Jesus has, he's washed the disciples' feet. He's predicted his denial by Peter, and he's predicted his betrayal. And so in chapter 14, he starts off by comforting his disciples. And he says, verse 1 of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? It's like you want to say, Thomas, weren't you listening? But I love Jesus' answer because, well, it's I, I am the way, Thomas. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So I'm glad he asked the question. There's a very powerful, world-changing message in that statement that Jesus made because he's offering the, the solution to broken humanity that went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in perfect unity with one another, perfect communion with one another and with God. They were in this perfect partnership with God, and they were taking what God had made and declared good, and we're making it better in partnership with God. But then the serpent came along with a lie that they could be like God if they did the one thing that God forbid, forbidden, had forbidden, and that was the take, eating the fruit, the forbidden fruit. They believed a lie, and they ate of the fruit, and they were evicted from the garden, separated from God, and they began the process of dying. We are all born as descendants of Adam in the same spiritual dark condition separated from God. Communion is broken. Truth is corrupted. Life is is meaningless, shattered. And Jesus specifically addressed this broken human condition in his answer to Thomas. Dr. David Jeremiah puts it this way. Jesus is communion or the way restored, truth recovered, life regained. Jesus is saying to Thomas, Thomas, I I want to be your way. I don't want to give you directions or point you. I want to be your way. I want to take you to the Father, where I came from. 
and restore your communion with him. He says that to every single one of us. Jesus Christ is the way. Um, the early Christians in Acts, as you recall, were called the people of the way. Uh, the movement was called the way because the Christians were looked upon and they had this odd way to get to God or new way, unique way to get to God through their Messiah. So they were called the way. So Jesus is saying, I want to be your way. Jesus is saying, I am the word or truth. In John 1, 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He, Jesus is the message to a world that has become ignorant of truth. Jesus was the truth about God walking around in a body. So he is saying, I want to take you back to the Father. I'm going to put truth back in your heart. And, and then he goes on and says, I am the life regained. Because his life, the life of Jesus, was the exact opposite of death. And he proved it when he, was def when he defeated death by being raised from the grave. And not just eternal life someday in the by and by. But now we have life and we have it abundantly. No, we have it more abundantly to the max. Our eternal life began the moment we trusted Jesus. And that's kind of a hard thing to understand, just like it's hard to understand how I am standing here, but I am also right now. My spiritual reality is that I am seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I can't explain that. I just know it's true. Eternal life, my eternal life began the moment I trusted Jesus. And it'll take on a new dimension when this body breathes its last. But I am part of the eternal life and that life abundant here and now. So there had to be atonement for our sin only Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, could accomplish that requirement of God's holiness. And only Jesus could make this statement. Jesus Christ, he righted the ship that Adam and Eve got off course. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Austin Gentry said that Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. I love that statement. The most inclusive exclusivity there is. We're always being told that, well, you're just exclusive, you're narrow-minded, you're bigoted, you're hateful. Um, that statement uh, it, 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 that, that Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity, it, it is. It's inclusive because it's, it's, it's the offer is to anyone and everyone. Um, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He wants all to believe. That's very clear in Scripture. So it's open to anyone, but it's only through the exclusive part of it is that it's only through Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that takes us back to God. We're reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, and he's the one that, that, that he is the way. So, so far as that spiritual truth itself is concerned, it really makes no difference whether I believe it or not as far as the truth itself is concerned, because the truth will stand on its own. Jesus, in submission to the Father, said it. That Jesus that we talked about earlier, whose, whose followers changed the world, they, they brought about education in universities and help for the sick and hospitals. They freed the slaves. That Jesus, that Jesus. But there are eternal consequences for what we do with that statement that he made. There used to be an old song, and I don't know if there's anybody here old enough to remember it. Maybe. Um, it, it, said, it was a chorus. It said, God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me. Um, I think it would be more accurate to say, God said it, and that settles it, and it doesn't matter if I believe it or not. But that doesn't make for a good song. So. 
Um, <clears throat> so yeah, eternal consequences for what we do, every single human being does with that statement. I'm gonna go through, I, I'm gonna go through this pretty quickly because I think it's, it's important, so bear with me. Um, so um, if Christianity, this is an argument that you're gonna get, especially from millennials, just saying. If Christianity is true and all other religions are false, what's the fate of those who have never heard about Jesus? Is there, any, is there no hope for them? And I believe the Bible teaches that actually no one falls into that category. I believe that, um, and if we had more time, we could unpack this, and I, I, yeah, I welcome you to, to carry on this discussion with me. But I believe two truths in the Bible of, that God has revealed to everyone everywhere. One, that he exists. Romans 1.20 um, says that since, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have, made, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, creation, so that people are without excuse. So we know by observing the natural world around us that he exists. And the second thing I believe, that God is a, is a moral law. We all know this by experiencing our conscience within us. Every one of us has a moral sense of right and wrong, and Romans 2.15 addresses that. When Paul says they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. So basically, I think there's enough information in creation to generate in a person's mind and heart a knowledge that there is a God that they should seek. The rest of the chapter of Romans tells about those, most of them turn against God and they actually go on and they, they witness, or they, they rather they worship his stuff, God's stuff. They worship nature instead of worshiping the creator. But I believe that God rescues those no matter where they are who are reaching out and seeking after him. And, and sometimes he does it through dreams. We, we're hearing a lot of that lately, especially among the Muslim community. Uh, sometimes through rogue uh, radio waves and satellite transmissions, a word will get out into a place where it was, wasn't even supposed to reach, and somebody hears the name Jesus. And it sparks something in them. Just one example. There's a guy traveling on a train in Pakistan. He was a believer, and he had his New Testament with him. And he happened to notice, as he was sitting on the train going to the next city, a well-dressed Muslim man across from him. The Holy Spirit began to impress on this guy's heart to give that man his Bible. He didn't want to do it. He did not want to give up his New Testament. But the Holy Spirit just kept prompting him, like the Holy Spirit does sometimes. So he got up his nerve, he did a little introduction of himself, and he handed that Muslim gentleman his Bible. That guy immediately stood up, tore it in half, and threw it out the window. And in those awkward moments, the fellow that had given him the Bible thought, did, did, what just happened? Did I, did I hear wrong? About a year later, that guy was at a conference where they were teaching evangelism. There were a group of people at that conference and it was time for testimonies. And a guy stood up and he said that he had heard the name Jesus on a radio and he didn't know any more about it than that name Jesus. And he was praying to an unknown God as he walked along the railroad tracks one day and a Bible hit him in the head. <laughs> this guy is thinking, there's no way, no way. And about that time, the gentleman held up the two halves of the New Testament. Amen. There's, I just believe with all my heart, and that's just one story. Um, there, we hear stories like that all the time, of, especially it seems like from third world countries and, and missionary stories, are the, they're great. Um, uh, the Holy Spirit's at work, and I believe that if, if, no matter who it is, if they, have, if they are seeking God, he will be found. And there are lots of verses that talk about that. And I wish, again, we had 
more time uh, to talk about that. But anyway, no charge for that. Uh, so in closing, uh, guys, if you're here today and perhaps you're now rethinking your belief that there's more than one way to God and, and maybe are feeling prompted to just return to Jesus and, and, and acknowledge him as the only way. Or you may be prompted to trust Jesus for the first time as the only way. I would humbly and passionately encourage you to do so. Um, you can reach out to myself, any of us, um, just find somebody to, to talk to more about it if you need to do that. In fact, I would say if you're wrestling with this or, or, or other aspects of, of the claims of Jesus, uh, just get up with somebody maybe at your table, at your breakout session. Find somebody that you could maybe meet with even away from this venue. I mean, you certainly could meet with him. We have, we're here all day. But even if you wanted to meet with him away from this venue somewhere, uh, just to sit down, no judgment, just sit and talk, have a dialogue about the claims of Jesus Christ and why he is, in fact, the only way to God. And I want to talk just briefly to those of us who are in the battle and get called bigots and hateful, arrogant. It's really the, uh, uh, an expected response from the world, right? I mean, humanity, the world is humanity set against God. That they're going to make those claims. They can't, they're intolerant. They talk about being tolerant. They're, they're very intolerant of Christian ideals. And here's the thing, sadly, there are a number of Christians, growing number of Christian men who are troubled by this conflict. They're actually troubled by Jesus' claims to be the single course of salvation, even though they've trusted Jesus. And so we shrivel back in fear and in intimidation. And this, my brothers, indicates how much the world has come to live in us as we attempt to live in the world. We're, we're impacted and pushed around, and it, I don't see it getting any better. We're pushed around by this pluralistic culture, and, and it too often causes us to lose zeal and, and confidence and commitment, even to the point uh, of just giving lip service to Jesus. I've been there. So a few reminders for us. One, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? We are conquerors. No, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Gentlemen, culture does not define us. You know, I talk with men a lot, and it's constantly, it's almost inevitably comes to them deriving their identity from work. And it takes a while to convince guys, again, I was one of them, that their work doesn't define them. Well, neither does culture define us, unless we let it. Um, I'll tell you what does define us, cross of Jesus Christ. That's what defines us. So I want to, I want to encourage us to embrace our identity in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. This union that we have with Christ, and Paul talks about it very directly in 1 Corinthians. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Guys, we are one spirit with Jesus Christ if we are following him and if we are following him and accepted him as our, as, our, as our Messiah, as our Lord, as our Savior. We function as one for the purposes of the greater one, and that's Jesus. And I would just encourage us to embrace our identity, embrace the fact that, you know, I hear people say a lot, it drives me crazy. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I get it. I get it. I was a sinner once, and I was, I'm saved by grace, and I'm not that anymore. God doesn't say, God doesn't, he, God wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't introduce me and say, this is Jan Long, he's just a sinner saved by grace. He would say, hey, this is Jan Long. I'm, I'm so proud of him. He's my son. 
my, this, the Jesus, the, the, the blood of my only begotten son is, is covers him, and he just, he makes me smile. He makes me laugh sometimes. <laughs> makes me cringe sometimes. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the way Jesus would introduce us. He would say, this is my beloved son. I, I love this guy. He's a great hunter. He's a great fisherman, great storyteller, whatever. Um, so, I guess we're, I just am trying to make that the point that that we were sinners by God's grace. We're not anymore in the sense that we have the blood of Jesus covering us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. And that's who we are. That's our spiritual reality. We're saints. We're holy. Not because we act that way, but because God said we are. He said that about me. He said that about you. So guys, I, I hope this is all kind of comes together and makes sense because I know we spent a lot of time talking about apologetics. But it, again, it all, it's, it's this Jesus guy that said he's the only way to God. So I, I just think that we need to learn and be aware of all of the influences of, of Jesus in our world because every single one of them point to one thing, his divinity. So he has the right, nobody else does, to say, I am the way the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, I just pray and trust that we have perhaps become a little better prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have and that we've gained a bit more confidence in how to address the lie that there are many ways to God. God, give us wisdom now as we interact with our family, our friends, our neighbors, and co-workers. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.